Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you, and I have really enjoyed the couple of weeks I've had to spend with you. And like Charlie and Ma Michael, I just want to again say Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. Uh, this is a big deal for me this year because this is my first year to not only be a dad, but to also be a grandfather. Uh, both of our kids had uh, little girls this last year, <clears throat> and someone appropriately told me that uh, being a grandparent is God's reward for you not killing your kids, and I think that's exactly right. But we all know that a lot of kids are growing up in a world without any real father in their lives, and uh, so dads, what you do really matters, and we need dads who um, will courageously live for God. We desperately need dads who will take a hold of being spiritual leaders in their homes. We need dads who will be just as intentional about raising their kids as they are about building their businesses. Um, so I just want to say thank you. The fact, Dad, that <clears throat> you're here today says a lot about you and about the priority of faith in your life. And uh, so I just want to encourage you in that. And also let you know, you know, I suspect that for all of us, there are people who could do our job vocationally, but nobody else can be a father to my kids but me. And so that is a noble calling for all of us. And so um, we want to honor you, bless you, pray for you, and encourage you on this day. Well, as Charlie said, we're in week three of this series called Empty. And the idea is that there's a lot in life that drains us and leaves us feeling empty. And when we're empty, we're not at our best. And so what we want to talk about is how do you you know, mitigate that? How do you keep from having life just suck everything out of you? And what does it look like? Well, here's a fundamental truth we want to start with. Every single person in this room has a soul. Whether you're aware of it or not, you have this real thing inside of you called a soul. Um, you, you can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't see it on an x-ray. But it's real and it's there. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that your soul is the real you. I mean, you could go out, get in your car today, have an accident, and they might need to amputate your arm, but you'd still be you. You could go to the hospital this week, get a kidney transplant, have somebody else's kidney inside of your body, and yet you'd still have the same soul. I've even discovered that you can lose your hair and still keep the same soul. You are not defined by your body. You're defined by this part of you called your soul. And someday, your body's going to get old and weak, and it's going to die, and your heart's going to beat for the last time, and they're going to pronounce you dead, and they're going to stick you in the ground. But here's the really good news. You're not really dead because you have an immortal soul that continues to live on. And if you are a follower of Jesus, that moment of your death is nothing more than your transition into heaven. So think about this for a moment. Think about how much time and effort you spend on your body. I mean, you shampoo, wash, groom, clean, wax, manicure, paint, exercise, comb, tuck, and all that before you came to church this morning. So you spend a lot of effort. Doesn't it make sense then that you would spend as much effort and focus on the internal 
eternal part of you as you would your body. Because no matter how much you take care of your body, someday it's going to wear out. It's going to get old. It's going to die. But the soul part of you is going to continue to live on. And I like to think of your soul as sort of this internal, invisible bucket. And that bucket um, has a lot to do with your health. And when your bucket is full, when your soul is doing well, you have more joy in your life, you're happier, you have a sense of purpose, you are living in a healthy way. But when life drains you and sucks the life out of you, you end up being more stressed, more irritable, more angry, and you end up living in an unhealthy kind of way. Well, this weekend, I want to talk to you about something that has huge implications for the health of your soul. And in all my years of being a pastor, I've never one time preached on this. In fact, in my 54 years of being on this planet, I've never one time heard this topic addressed in church, but I want to address it this morning. So I've entitled my message, Techno Danger. I want to talk about the issue of technology and your soul. Now you say, well, that ought to be interesting because I don't remember anywhere where the Bible talks about computers or smartphones. Well, you're right, it doesn't. But the Bible does talk a lot about the health of your soul. And some of what we're experiencing today in technology puts some of that at risk. And so that's what I want to talk about today. So I want to first begin with a verse of Scripture from 2 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul writes these words. And listen to what he says. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates both body and spirit or soul, that uh, internal part of you. Paul says there's things in this world that are toxic, not just to your body, but even to your soul. And we want to talk about some of those today. Now, you know and I know that everything that's been created has both a, an upside and a downside. Everything has a shadow side. Everything that can be productive, can be abused, and become destructive. So you can take a knife, and that knife can be a scalpel to bring healing and health to somebody, or it can be a knife to stab them and wound them. Sex is a wonderful gift when it's experienced between a man and a woman in marriage, but when it's part of an adulterous relationship, it's very destructive. Or your words... Out of your mouth can come words that bless and uplift and encourage people. But you also can use words to be destructive. You can cut and slice and criticize people with your words. And technology is no different. It has wonderful upside, wonderful things that it has opened up to us. But it also has a dark side. And we're very familiar with some of that, aren't we? Pornography, sexual predators, scam artists, identity theft. But I submit to you this morning that there are some more subtle downsides to technology that are much more socially acceptable. And these have huge implications for the health of your soul. And so I, I almost feel like the, the right way to start the message today is, is the way that they start meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's kind of with the admission. So, you know, I feel like I should stand up and say, hi, my name is Lance Witt and I'm addicted to technology. And I suspect some of you could say the same thing. That if we were to look at your life and the patterns of your life, you're not just a casual user of technology, but you're actually addicted. And that's especially true for Jason Russell. You may not recognize that name, but Jason Russell created a documentary about an African warlord named Joseph Coney who's known for his horrific crimes against humanity. 
And so Jason wanted to produce this video to expose what was going on with Coney and see if something could be done about it. And so the idea came up to, to get more um, exposure is to use social media for his documentary. And so when his documentary is done, he sent out a link to his friends who put it on their social media sites who then sent it on to their friends. And in one week's time, that documentary was viewed 70 million times. 70 million times. Well, Jason Russell's world forever changed. He was no longer this anonymous guy creating a video. He was a worldwide, well-known figure. And he became opened up to all kinds of kudos and all kinds of criticism. And he was met with this tsunami of feedback coming through social media. And he couldn't handle it. In the first four days after the documentary came out, um, Jason only slept two hours. Eight days after the documentary came out, he walked outside of his house in San Diego, took off all of his clothes, went out in the street, began to slap his open palms on the pavement, and began to rant about the devil. And by the way, that video also went viral. He got checked into the hospital. He was diagnosed with a kind of temporary insanity, psychosis, and he's now out of the hospital, but all of his social media accounts have gone dark. Now, here's the paradox. With all that technology has done for us, all that phones and computers and iPads have opened up to us, the one thing they can never teach us is how to make appropriate use of them. Someone has rightfully said that the information revolution, which all of us are a part of, never came with an owner's manual. So what I want to do is spend just a couple of minutes helping you wrap your mind around the kind of stranglehold that technology is placing on all of us. So let me give you just a few facts. The average American spends eight and a half hours every day in front of some kind of screen. In one survey, one-third of the people stated they check their phones before they even get out of bed in the morning. In the last quarter of 2010, in a survey among teenagers, it was discovered that teenagers send and receive an average of 3,705 texts every single month. And by the way, I think that number's low. Preteens, 9, 10-year-olds, are sending and receiving somewhere just under 1,200 text messages every single month. Traffic on the internet has doubled every year since it came into existence. In places now like South Korea and China, they are opening what they call internet rescue camps to help kids deal with their addiction to technology. The average office worker today, researchers have found, enjoy no more than three minutes sitting at their desk without some kind of technology interruption. And interestingly, now there's a lot more neuroscience around this, and we're beginning to see how it's actually impacting your physical brain. And when they take pictures of a brain on cocaine and a brain that has spent a lot of time on the Internet, they look almost identical. So neuroscientists are now calling uh, the Internet electronic cocaine. We used to think that the brain was much like a computer, and we talked about it having circuits and being hardwired, and we talk about how we're hardwired. But what neuroscientists are discovering is not that the brain is so much like a computer, but it's actually far more amazing than that. In fact, they have a new term that they've developed called neuroplasticity, which says your brain has literally the ability to reshape itself depending on what it's exposed to and what it experiences. Neuroscientists have a saying that says, Neurons that fire together, wire together. So as you constantly 
expose your brain to the stimulation of technology and media, you are literally rewiring how your brain functions and even how it is shaped. You know, I was thinking about this message, and it seems like when, when technology first came and the Internet first got um, you know, put up in front of all of us, it was sort of like we walked into a stable, we saw this horse standing there, and we climbed up in the saddle and took the reins, and we began to slowly walk the horse around the stable. But in the last few years, it is like the horse is broken out of the stable, has gone into a full gallop. We've fallen out of the saddle, and with one foot stuck in the stirrup, now the horse is dragging us. And what we used to control, now in many ways, controls us. So, let's talk about this. What, what is it about technology that has implications for me as a follower of Christ? Well, I want to give you... Three dangers and then some things that we can do in response to them. So here's danger number one. Technology is eroding our ability to focus on people. Now one of the things that's true about Christians is we put a high premium on life. And we do so because we believe that every person who's ever been born is created in the image of God. That you are not here by accident, that you are not here by coincidence or by chance, but you actually were planned by God, and you have a purpose on this planet. And so we put a high premium on people. So when we look at people, we can say to them with full confidence, hey, you matter to God. God loves you. You're created in His image. And so we put a high premium on people. But my fear is that as technology becomes more and more prevalent, we begin to be more and more impersonal and get so preoccupied with our machines that we miss the people standing right in front of us. So a couple of months ago, I was in the Apple store, and I was looking for a new cover for my iPhone. And they had this one that looked great. It actually looks like a book, and the spine of it looks like one of those antique books. And I thought, this looks great. But the problem was, the front cover of it kind of laid over the front of your phone. And I thought, well, now that's going to be a little bit awkward when I put the phone up to my ear. I've got to pull that flat back. And so I asked the guy, I go, hey, that seems like that would be a little bit cumbersome. And he goes, well, yeah, if you actually used your phone to talk. And I said, so what do you mean? He said, well, the only people I actually talk to on my phone are my parents, and that's because they don't know how to text message. He said, other than my parents, 100% of my conversations are text messaging. And so, again, it was just this kind of moment for me of realizing that we are more and more moving to a day when it's less about people and real life conversations and actual relationships and not virtual relationships. So in fact, I, I have this little commercial that in a humorous way tries to get this same point across. So watch this. I read an article, well, I read the majority of an article online about how older people are becoming more and more antisocial. So I was really aggressive with my parents about joining Facebook. My parents are up to 19 friends now. <coughs> I have 687 friends. This is living. What? That is not a real puppy. <coughs> that's too small to be a real puppy. 687 friends. Now that's living. And yet, that's more and more how we view things in our culture. But I want you to understand that at the heart of Christianity is this word called incarnation. In the flesh. Jesus Christ left heaven, came to our planet, became one of us, lived among us, 
so that we would know that he understands our world, became one of us, personal, in the flesh, focused on people. And I love the fact that when you read through the Gospels, Jesus never seems to be in a hurry. He never looks past people. He's never caught multitasking. He's always lasered in on the person he's with. And here's one of the things that the philosopher Seneca said that we ought to remember. To be everywhere is to be nowhere. And sometimes because we are always multitasking and have so many things that we're plugged into, we try to be everywhere. And one of the dangers is we get scattered and unintentionally we start to devalue people. Sherry Turkle, who's a MIT psychologist, did surveys with 450 people about their habits of being online and always being plugged in. And one of her conclusions is that technology can make us forget the important things that we know about life. And one of the important things about life is your life is defined by relationships with real people. So here's my challenge to us. Learn to practice the ministry of presence. Whenever Jesus was in a conversation, he seems to lean in. He focuses. I, I sort of imagine Jesus giving eye contact and, and being present. I remember a season in my life when I was uh, an executive pastor in a large church and a lot going on, very fast-paced, a lot of pressure, a lot of emails return every day. And I remember my wife sometimes frustrated would say to me, even when you're here, you're not here. Like your body's here, but it's obvious that you're not here. That's the exact opposite of what I'm talking about when I talk about practicing the ministry of presence. That when you have a conversation that you lean in, that you make it about the person because they matter more than your email. They matter more than that text message. So technology runs the risk of eroding our ability to focus on people. Secondly, technology is eroding our ability to be quiet. More and more we're losing the ability to be quiet and alone with just our thoughts. We hate dead time. Silence makes us nervous. And so we fill the air with noise every single moment of the day. And there's a couple of passages in Scripture that are mind-boggling to me. I can't even wrap my mind around them living in 2013. So one of them is in the book of Exodus when it says, Moses and Joshua went up on Mount Sinai and it says, The glory of the Lord came down on the mountain. And for six days there was absolute silence. And then on the seventh day God spoke. But for six days nothing. Nothing. Or in the book of Job, after Job goes through this terrible tragedy of losing his kids, losing his wealth and his livestock, his servants, even his health, his friends come and when they see the tragedy he's going through, they're so overcome, the Bible says, they sit with him for seven days without saying a single word. I can't even grasp that. Or Jesus you know, I think if Jesus were to come and sit among us today and go, listen, I'd like your advice because I've only got three years to do my public ministry. I'm going to launch my ministry at 30. At 33, I'm going to be on the cross. What do I need to do to launch this worldwide revolution called Christianity? And we would say to him, well, the first thing you need to do, Jesus, is get a really cool website. And then you got to get a Facebook fan page. And then you need to get a Twitter account, and we got to get a marketing firm. And then we need to set up some big events for you where there would be lots of crowds. And then you look at the life of Jesus, and, well, that's not his approach at all. In fact, in Mark 1, it says, after a very busy day of ministry, um, 
healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel. It says in Mark 1.35, on the next day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left. And I read that and I go, well, that makes sense to me. I mean, he's only got three years. He should be getting up early. He's got a lot to do and get done before he goes back to heaven. And after all, he's the son of God. Seems like he ought to get up earlier than everybody else. But it says when he got up early and left the house, he went out to a solitary place just to be alone, to be quiet, to spend time with his heavenly father, to pray. And the disciples come looking for him, and they say, hey, everybody back in town's looking for you. And Jesus goes, yeah, we're not going back to that village. Even though there was still a lot to be done, he says, we're going to a new place to preach the gospel. And what's clear in the passage is this, that it was in that quiet place where he got his next set of instructions from his heavenly father. And I wonder if maybe some of the reason that we feel so lost sometimes in our world and lose our bearings is because we don't have any quiet place. I love this quote. It says, it's only by having some distance from the world that you can see the whole and understand what you should be doing with it. I struggle with this. Um, I'm a type A kind of driven person, so I'm always trying to get stuff done and get things checked off my to-do list. And, um, you know, when I, I have a Mac computer and when my mail comes up, it has um, this little red dot down at the bottom. So when a new email comes in, it's that my, it's you know, notifying me I have a new email. Well, for someone like me, that's like cocaine. I just can't not look at it. So I've, I've had to learn to shut off the notifications so I can stay focused and actually stay quiet. And um, I spend a lot of time on airplanes, so I leave my car at the Denver parking area, and I ride the shuttle to the terminal. It's about a 10-minute ride. And I looked on uh, the shuttle one day, and every single person, including me, was buried in their phone. And so I thought, all right, Lance, is a good start. Why don't you take this 10 minutes and just stay unplugged and just sit quietly? So I put my phone in my pocket. But over the next 10 minutes, I'll bet you five or six times I instinctively just reach for my phone because that's what I do when I have a few extra moments. And so it was hard for me, still is hard for me, to just enjoy that 10-minute ride, just be quiet, alone. Because here's what technology is doing to us. Technology is creating an attraction to distraction. We're constantly distracted. In one survey, it revealed that office workers check their computers 30 to 40 times an hour for new emails and new messages. No wonder we have such a hard time being quiet, praying, being alone, because we're so distracted. Listen to these words, 10 words in this verse in Psalm 37, 7 that stand as a challenge to us. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently on Him. Be still. Be quiet. That part of what it means for you to have a healthy soul is that you learn to have quiet in your life where you can be alone with God, where you can have moments to just reflect and think and meditate. That's part of what it looks like for you to have a, a full bucket. So technology has the danger in it of us not focusing on people. It will rob us of any quiet or silence in our lives. But then her, here's the third danger. Technology is eroding our ability to have a healthy rhythm of life. Uh, everything that God created has rhythm in it. The sun comes up and goes down in rhythm. Even as you sit here today, you breathe in rhythm. Your heart beats in rhythm. The tide goes in and 
It comes in and goes out in rhythm. Music is all about rhythm. Farming is built around this rhythm of plant and grow and harvest. Even in Leviticus chapter 25, God said to the nation of Israel, every seven years, I want you to give the land a rest. So there's this rhythm, and here's the rhythm. The rhythm is one of work and produce, rest and recover. And <coughs> excuse me, and that's a rhythm that God wants you to have for life. And you were made to live in rhythm. You were not made to go all the time, to go fast and hard all the time. And yet that seems to be our tendency. Adrenaline has become our hormone of choice. And there's no downtime. There's no space. There's no quiet. There's no rhythm in our lives. We just go faster and harder all the time. And every week I work with pastors. And I occasionally run across that pastor who kind of has talked himself into believing that he has no limits. And he has no space in his life. And so he hits the wall and experiences what we call burnout. Because when you violate this principle of rhythm, eventually you will do damage to your health, to your soul, to your body, to your emotions, and to your relationships. So here's a principle I want you to get. To be healthy, you must have space in your life. And the quality of your life has everything to do with the space in your life. Noah Ben Shea, who writes as a Jew, says... Um, the space between the, the notes makes the music. And it's the space between the notes of the excessive pace of your life, the unbelievable busyness of your life that really gives you the life that you want to live. And like a lot of you, I have a long history of taking on more than I should. I have a long history of, of, of just busyness. And often wearing that as kind of a badge of honor because busy people are important people. And my wife would tell you that I struggle to, to sit still or to relax or even go on vacation and just kind of unplug. But here's what I've been learning in recent years. God has given us a gift. And if we learn this gift, it will help us to be healthy and live from a healthy soul. And the gift is this word called Sabbath. I don't know if you're very familiar with the word. The word literally means to quit or to stop. And it's a very important word because it's a word that's all about rhythm. When you go back to creation, the Bible says that God created the world. And then on the seventh day, it says he rested. Now, God didn't rest because he was worn out, exhausted from creating the mountains and the oceans. God rested to give us this principle of rhythm. That there is this rhythm of work and produce, rest and recover. This was so important that God embedded it into the Ten Commandments. So right up there with thou shalt not kill and steal and commit adultery, God says, I want you to keep a day called Sabbath. So let me read to you from Exodus 20 from the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days do all your labor and your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Some of you walked into today exhausted, fatigued. Your life all week long has run you ragged and you just feel like you're empty and you're running on fumes. And God says, I have a plan. If you'll follow it, it's a plan to help you be healthy but it's going to require that you embrace this thing called rhythm. 
Now, an obvious question is, so, okay, I get it, it's in the Ten Commandments. What did Jesus have to say about it? Well, not a lot, actually. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you might think that Jesus is regularly violating the Sabbath. But he doesn't really violate the Sabbath. He violates all the hundreds of artificial man-made rules that religious leaders added to define Sabbath. In fact, the main thing that Jesus taught about Sabbath was this. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's a gift to help you, not a burden for you to bear. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And he says, I want you to embrace this thing called rhythm. The Jews have this practice called Havdalah, and in Havdalah, they light a candle at the beginning of Sabbath to remind them to slow down, to enjoy relationships, to be with God. And then at the end of the 24 hours, they take the candle, they extinguish it in a cup of wine, and then pour some of it into a saucer. And here's the symbolism. That if you will do Sabbath well, it will spill over into the rest of your week, and you'll be a better person the other six days of the week. And I think that's right. Now, for some of you, I know you're sitting there and you're going, Buddy, you have no clue about my life. There's not a chance I could unplug. And what I've had to do is wrestle with this biblically and realize this isn't a suggestion, it's a commandment, and it's in my best interest. So let me give you four words as you wrestle with this that might help you frame out what Sabbath looks like. So the first word is stop. The word Sabbath means stop. It's about not working, about the things that you ought to do, have to do. You unplug from those for 24 hours. So what would it look like for you to stop? Maybe you say, well, I can't start with 24. Well, what would it look like for you to unplug for a half a day? Stop. The second word is rest. For some of you, the most spiritual thing you could do is take a nap. Not right now, but later, you could take a nap. And, and by the way, God gives you permission to slow down and rest. The third word is the word delight because Isaiah 58 talks about Sabbath being a delight. And so one of the questions I like to ask when I teach on this is, what is it that's life-giving to you? What is it that when you do it, it just fills your tank? Well, I, I live in Colorado and around some great mountains, and so I love to get out in nature, love to ride my bike. And when I'm out, it is so life-giving to me. Do you realize God gave you five senses, not just for functional reasons, but also just so you could enjoy what he made? And God's given you permission to do that. And then the last word is the word worship. Because it's a Sabbath unto the Lord. So Sabbath ought to be a day when I slow down, when I, I spend a little longer just reading scripture or taking a walk and praying or putting on my favorite worship CD and just spending some extended time with God. That's, that's a good way for us to think about what it is to practice Sabbath. It's stop, rest, delight, and then worship. You know, I was a kid. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and um, we didn't get much snow, but every so often we get three or four inches of snow, and it would, like, paralyze the city. And I remember when I was a kid, I would get up and sit in front of the TV early in the morning on those days because um, they put across the bottom of the screen all the schools that were going to close that day. And I would sit there with anticipation, just waiting and waiting. And then I would see it, Osuna Elementary closed. And it was like I could hear the hallelujah chorus in heaven. <laughs> and my mom was great. She never made us do homework or chores. She, snow days meant it was a day to do anything I wanted to do. Can I tell you something? 
Every seven days, God has given you permission to have a snow day. Doesn't that sound good? So here's the question I want to close with. Where do we go from here? I'm, I have this quote, Sam Anderson from the New York Magazine says, it's too late to just retreat to a quieter time. I mean, technology is not going away, so we have to learn how to manage it. So I would say some of you, you need to learn yourself and your own tendencies and where you most get tripped up with this, where you get preoccupied or where you spend too much time in technology. For some of you, the most important thing you'll do is you'll go home and have a conversation with your family about what does it look like for us to manage technology. I know one family that they put a basket on their dining room table and when they have dinner together, everybody puts their phone in the basket. Nobody gets to take it out. I know a church staff that when they go out to eat, they put a basket in the table. Everybody puts their phone there. And if anybody reaches for their phone during the meal, they have to pay for everybody else's lunch. I think that's a genius idea. Maybe some of you, you need to give your phone a Sabbath and put on auto reply on your email. Hey, I'll get back to you on Monday, but I'm taking a Sabbath today. Or maybe some of us, you need to start just putting on your calendar 10 minutes just to be quiet and alone. Did somebody's phone just ring? I'm not even going to comment on that. I don't know what your next step is. I don't know what the issues are, but here's what I do know. If you're going to be healthy, you've got to have space in your life. You've got to learn to be quiet. And you've got to focus on people. So what's the step that you need to take? All right, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here today, uh, to be at this great group of people. All of us, Lord, struggle with this. We live in a world that is plugged in all the time, 24-7. So help us to put boundaries in our lives that are going to help us be healthier, to, to know how to be quiet, to create space, to be rested, to love people the way that you would. Lord, we want to do life well, and thank you for these gifts you've given us to teach us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Father's Day and a wonderful weekend. God bless you. Thanks for being here.